0: Hey, this is Dan Wunderlich, and welcome to Art of the Sermon, a show for preachers, teachers, and communicators. My guest today is David Van Bima. He was the head religion writer for Time from 1999 to 2009, and today he joins us to share about a book he's co-authored called The Prayer Wheel, a daily guide to renewing your faith with a rediscovered spiritual practice. David was one of the first journalists to cover the rediscovery of this prayer tool and also shares with us a bit about the enduring legacy of the Psalms. Well, my guest today is David Van Bima, and he was the head religion writer for Time from 1999 to 2009. He's also the co-author of a new book called The Prayer Wheel, A Daily Guide to Renewing Your Faith with a Rediscovered Spiritual Practice. Uh, he wrote that with Patton Dodd and Jana Reese, and uh, I got a chance to check out this book. Uh, it is it is wonderful. It is a really great uh, tool for prayer. Uh, but uh, we're speaking with David today because he's one of the guys that uh, was more focused on the history side of things and the history nerd in me really welled up as I was using this tool. So it is a wonderful devotional, and I encourage you all to check it out and maybe even uh, use it with your congregations. Uh, But for those of us that are are preachers and teachers and love the backstory, we're here to talk with David. So David, thank you so much for being with us today.
1: Well, thanks for having me, Dan. This is great.
0: Absolutely. Why don't we begin by having you tell us a little bit about yourself as well as your work and its context? Uh,
1: Well, I'm primarily a religion journalist. Uh, Most of my well, not my career since about 1993 or so has been writing about religion from a secular point of view for uh, secular publications. Uh, so this was a, a kind of a, a different step for me. I started my religion writing career in 93 for Time Magazine and, and continued on until, um, I guess, uh, 2010. Uh, and uh, since then, I've I've sort of, for the most part, been working on a book about the Psalms. But then something really weird happened, and it ended up being this book.
0: <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, I also noticed the credits on the back that you worked on a book about Mother Teresa. Is that also true?
1: Yeah, I wrote a I wrote a short book uh, for uh, Time Books about Mother Teresa. That was tremendous fun. Actually, I had done a I had done a cover on her when uh, the letters were released, where she had expressed the the dryness of her prayer life and how she responded to that, uh, which was fascinating and and that turned into the cover and then the cover begat the book.
0: Well, that's great, and we'll certainly touch on these themes throughout. But it's so interesting to me that the Mother Teresa book focuses on prayer. The Psalms themselves, many of them are prayers, and then this is a prayer tool. So it seems like prayer uh, has been something that's woven in and out of your work pretty much your, your whole career.
1: Yeah, I, I, it's conceivable that it's easier for me to. Um, I should say that I'm, I'm a secular Jew, so it's, it may be that it's easier for me to grasp prayer than it is to grasp sort of, uh, the, uh, the other aspects of, of church and religion. Um, not to say that I didn't write about them, but merely, uh, that it's, I'm not, and it's not what I would call, and I'm not saying that I have a deep grasp, I'm actually writing something about that now, Uh, the, the difficulty of dealing with people who actually really pray Uh, As a co-author, when you yourself uh, aren't really involved in writing, writing about prayer. um, But I think in some ways it's more accessible. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. Well, we like to begin sort of at the 30,000-foot level with, with all of our guests. So uh, whether they are uh, pastors and preachers, we've had musicians on here, songwriters, YouTubers, we've had people from all different backgrounds on here. So don't worry about not being a pastor or a preacher. Uh, but we, I, I like to do that because I feel like we can all learn from folks in and outside of our disciplines. And when we only try to learn from people who are just like us, we really block ourselves off. So I want to ask you, as someone that has has written for time, who communicates with words all the time. What are some of your philosophies or approaches to writing? Uh, If you had like a mission statement or a guiding principle for your work, what might it be?
1: Um, I think it's to try to bring things to people's attention uh, that they might not otherwise know about, but do it in a way that they can understand. Um, And since almost nobody knows about anybody else's religion, that's not too hard in, in this field.
0: Yeah. I mean,
1: The hard part is to make it understandable.
0: Uh, Well, here uh, we are recording this in early February. Uh, The episode will be out uh, in March. And in February of 2018, you and your co-authors are releasing this new book called The Prayer Wheel. And uh, I know that your co-authors, like we said earlier, focus more on the devotional aspects. Uh, But I wanted to bring you in because there's sort of this historical context to the project. uh, And you have a really unique connection to the the very sort of rediscovery of this tool. So can you talk about the origins of this project and, and, and how you were connected to it?
1: I was invited to uh, come and do a story about basically a monastic library that had been put on sale. It had not been in a monastery for many centuries, but uh, a dealership called uh, Ley and Luminure uh, had pulled together a, a bunch of, of wonderful monastic books and had invited me to possibly do a story for the Religion News Service, for whom I sometimes write. And um, when I got there, it was obvious that the kind of the crown jewel of the collection was this huge oaken-covered Gospels book with the four Gospels in it it was i don't know it was just massive it was massively expensive they wanted 6 million dollars for it and holy cow yeah and they wanted me to write about it and i was having a lot of difficulty figuring out uh, exactly what i should be focusing on and finally after a lot of back and forth they said somebody said well ha- have you showed them the prayer wheel and and the answer was no they hadn't <laughs> so they opened this book up to the title page and on like the flyleaf so on what should have been an empty page in front of the uh, in front of the title page there is written in, a, in, in this spidery kind of script, unlike the script that's in the, the rest of the book, this amazing, or amazing to me, diagram uh, consisting of a set of concentric circles with the word, with a, with a little circle in the middle that said Deus, God. And let me try to explain it. It's important that you understand uh, what this looks like. Try to imagine uh, four concentric circles with God in the middle. Uh, and in each of those circles, that is, so written in a circular manner within the band of the circle, uh, there is a text. So you have, that means four texts. And each text is itself divided into seven parts. They still sit in the band, but you can see that, you know, here's part one and then there's a space and part two, sort of spaced evenly around the band. And if you think about it, you realize that all the part ones line up. And all the part twos of all the text line up, and so on. And there are seven of those paths, which form really the spokes of the wheel. If you if you want to talk about a yeah. wheel, and I looked at this thing, and I it was I fell in love with it without having any idea what it really was because it was all in medieval Latin. Yeah, uh, and uh, it was in these beautiful you know red and brown ink. And I later learned that the red was made from cinnabar and that the brown was made from oak gall. And uh, It pulled me in, and subsequently uh, they they gave me an English translation of the wheel. So the wheel, except with the with the lettering in English, and the texts were uh, the um, the Lord's Prayer, which was on the outermost wheel, uh, and the um, and now I'm going to do them in order of familiarity: the Lord's Prayer, uh, the Beatitudes from the Sermon on the Mount, the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit, uh, which are actually drawn from Isaiah eleven two and three, I believe it is, uh, but were already a Christian thing at, at, at that time. Right. Uh, and a um, kind of spiritual uh, timeline of the life of Christ. I say Christ because it goes all the way to the, to the Last Judgment. Right. Um, right. And uh, starting with uh, the Incarnation. So those were the four texts, and those are all such powerful, central texts, and a a friend of mine with whom I was corresponding about this, uh, yeah, he says that there's a term for it, which is the whole council of scripture, which I was not really familiar with. Um, But what what it is, is this remarkable density of scriptural uh, and Christian ideas uh, all in one place. And what happens is, the way that the wheel works is that you can read each of the texts around and you'll just get a basic reading of a, of a, of a text or a scripture that you already know. However, if you choose to read, read down the spikes, right, then what you're doing is recombining uh, the ideas from those texts. And again, because of, of the richness of, of the original texts, it's basically what you get is a, is a string of, of very orthodox ideas Uh, that it invites you to pray on or to meditate on or to, if you will, do a sermon. A kind of an email friend of mine named Brian Kay, uh, who has been a pastor, and he actually kind of he writes about the the boundary of uh, prayer and uh, psychoanalysis. Uh, So he's an interesting guy. But when I found out before you sent me the questions, when I found out I was coming on the show and was terrified, I asked him to uh, to Because he's familiar with the wheel, and I asked him to to send me a note, like, what should I tell them? And so this is what he said. He said, The wheel could be used to pose a variety of questions to a single text of scripture, the answers for which might then become sermon points when preaching that text, i.e., what does this text I'm preaching say about God's holiness, which is one of the terms that is used, Uh, the coming of his kingdom, which is another one, our need uh, and his provision of a form of daily bread. an area uh, area for which we need forgiveness, etc. Which of uh, the Isaiah gifts of the scripture will I need to do what this text requires? Which of the episodes in the life of Jesus might bring this text to its natural climax? A lot of preaching is asking the text a good question and then speaking about how it answers that question. The wheel is full of preaching prompts.
0: So there's a
1: guy who's in, who's doing what you're doing. And I I hope that answer made some sense to you.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it's, uh, it's interesting. I went back and found some of your original blog posts from when it had been discovered and, and I could sense the excitement there. And there was also some uh, sense of, we don't yet know what this is or how it works. Did you almost have sort of like an Indiana Jones moment where you're like, we're really rediscovering something that had been lost?
1: Yeah, it was great. It was Indiana Jones or Dan Brown, you know, Da Vinci Code kind of moment. I mean, I had a very, very strong sense of this thing as a thing, as a, a tool, a device. Uh, and the beauty of it to me was that the these wheels, these these bands do not move, but you get the sense that there's motion going on. They, they, they managed to recombine these texts without actually pulling them apart, which is a truly neat trick. And I think that that created some kind of cognitive dissonance in my head that I found extremely attractive.
0: Yeah. And how did you all go about trying to decode the wheel? What kind of scholars or, or, or individuals or institutions did you turn to to try to figure out how all these things uh, fit together?
1: Uh, one of the people in Ley and Luminor, uh is a—I a, a, think he's— I forget whether he's at Oxford or Cambridge— uh, a don uh, there named Christopher de Hamel, who's an expert in, uh, in medieval manuscripts. And there was a bibliography, and he included a um, a German article uh, that uh, was something like the uh unser Vater Erklärungen des Mittelalters, which is like illustrated our father explanations uh, from the Middle Ages. Our father being the Lord's Prayer, right? that was the only text that we could find that really addressed these things directly. And so we got hold of it. Luckily I live in New York, so you can get hold of almost anything. Yeah, yeah. Uh, And, um, we had it translated, uh, which made us feel cool. Yeah. Uh, and, um, that was very, very helpful. Uh, it was from, uh, and then we, and then we got in, in contact with, with the author whose name is Ulrich Rehm, uh, who was very surprised to hear from us because he's <laughs> now, I think he's, somewhere in the 60s, and it was his doctoral dissertation or something. Oh, holy cow. And, you know, he told us that there are about uh, 70 of these diagrams uh, still in existence, that, that there were probably there were hundreds or perhaps thousands of them during about a 500-year period from about 1,000 to about 1,500. You know, there was a real vogue. Vogue is perhaps wrong. It was really, you know, it was out of necessity uh, in the Middle Ages for presenting Um, information in geometric forms. Mm. Uh, In some ways, it was a more uh, efficient way of getting more information in the proper uh, relationship to the other information than writing it all out, especially when writing it all out had to happen by hand. Uh, So they were very big on various geometric figures. Um, There were squares, there were uh, trellises, there were triangles, and the and the wheels uh, were one of these, um, but for my money, by far the most interesting because there's much more going on in the wheels than in the other ones.
0: Well, can you talk about the the connections you wrote in the historical background that Augustine was perhaps one of the first ones to begin aligning scriptures like this? And and I have to admit, I I was unfamiliar with this practice. So how how uh, you've you've I guess shared that that this geometric layout is similar, but uh, this sort of builds on on something that Augustine started.
1: Right. You can look at it sort of two ways. One is how did the geometric uh, presentation of information develop, which is uh, something that goes back, I think, to the Greeks and certainly to the Romans. Uh, but you can also look at the, the other thing that came together in about uh, 1000, uh, which was the using Scripture to interpret Scripture, which is a very old principle that goes back to Judaism and then was picked up by Christianity. But usually when, when people were doing this, um, they were... They were using one scripture to interpret one other scripture, mm. and, and as far as we know, it was quite a long time before somebody thought to add a third scripture. And and the one of the earliest people to do that was Augustine, who uh, who did not do it in a, in graphic form. Uh, he did it in an uh, in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, where he. Uh, he's, I believe he started with the Beatitudes, and then um, moved on to the Lord's Prayer, uh, and then um, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. At different points in his commentary, but he he made the point that these things should be divided into sevens. And then, you know, again, it's hard to get away from graphically. Right. And that, so, if you put it in a in a horizontal uh, square graph, you should be reading vertically as well as horizontally. So that you should be reading. All the the first parts together, all the second parts, all the third part, and and that it would throw great light on. And his the the idea uh, so at at that early point uh, was it would throw light on the Lord's Prayer. Hence, uh, Ulrich Rams. Um, uh, title about it being a uh, Right,
0: and so this prayer wheel then adds the elements from the life of Jesus and it wraps it around in a circle and of course a circle has all sorts of symbolic meaning for Christians this sort of never-ending circle um, is this, to the best of your knowledge is this the only prayer wheel that adds that fourth layer of Jesus' life or, or is this perhaps just the best known version of, of some that may still be floating around on some dusty bookshelf somewhere?
1: Well, I would have to say that none of them is known. I mean, you know, there might be a scholar here, a scholar there who knows one, or, I mean, in the case of Ulrich Rain, he's, as best I know, the only person to really make a study of the early ones. But what this was, was a relatively early one. The practice, uh, seem, or the oldest one that, that we know of uh, was from the late 11th century, and this one was probably done within 25 years of that. Uh, and they tend to become more complicated as time goes on. So as you move further into the Middle Ages, people added uh, circles. People, loved, the people in the Middle Ages love sevens. I mean, the Bible loves sevens. Yeah, yeah. They really love sevens. Uh, so there were lots of groups of seven things, and people would just add a layer and a layer and a layer. And at one point, I think they had made their way up to 12 layers. Holy cow. <laughs> uh, and But we thought that this was sort of in some ways the, the purest, Expression of the idea, and also we felt that it was an expression of the idea it could be most helpful to people now because some of the more obscure sevens were really not interested in at this
0: point. So as, as you read through the history section of the book, uh, and as you've explained a little bit, it kind of becomes clear that there is a limited amount of information that you can use to sort of um, understand the wheel. And so to a degree, you all had to reverse engineer it, uh, which is a term that you use when you talk about the wheel. Can you talk about how, um, how this sort of informed your process and maybe any, any sort of caveats you want to make sure that that readers understand.
1: Yeah, I mean, when we started to look into it, we realized extremely quickly that nobody had ever written a, a history of the wheel going way back to Augustine. And as a matter of fact, we didn't know that Augustine was really that his ideas were part of it. And we found ourselves because nobody had said, "Well, this is that I put this in the wheel then, or so yeah. and so put this in the wheel then." We we had to basically look at what the wheel was and uh, and look at the parts and try to figure out when they could have um, been developed so somebody could have added them in uh, and it and that 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 provided us with the questions that we wanted to ask of people who had expertise uh, in areas that seemed useful like uh, Roy Hammerling and through our conversations with them we basically figured out when and how the various aspects of the wheel could have been added to it. Uh, and that eventually kind of uh, uh, dovetailed with what Ulrich Rehm had already written about the wheel proper. But so I would not want to claim that, that we found an old source that said uh, it started with Augustine. and uh, it then moved to this guy, Red uh, uh, Redbertus in the uh, ninth century. And from there... Uh, to whoever the unknown genius was who, who took the, the horizontal thing and, and pulled it around in a circle. But I feel strongly that each of these things must have happened. Uh, in, and and there, there, there were obviously discrete moments when they happened. But the way that we discovered them was by going backwards, taking it apart and going backwards.
0: Do you have a sense for why this sort of prayer tool maybe fell out of fashion? Because we, we have practices that come and go all the time, and, and today our listeners are probably familiar with things like Lectio Divina, prayer labyrinths, even things like the rosary. Do you have a sense for, for why a prayer wheel might have fallen off sort of the radar of, of common Christian practice?
1: Well, it's conceivable that it wasn't as widespread as some of the other ones. I mean, I think Lectio was uh, saturated the Benedictine world, and it was the Benedictines who became everybody else, more or less, so... Uh, I don't think that that this probably ever attained that kind of popularity, so it was easier for it to die off. Mm. I also wonder about the impact of uh, of the Reformation on it. I mean, I'm not certain uh, that there's a big hole in that argument, which is that why wouldn't Catholics continue to use it? Sure. Um, but it, by the time we hit the Reformation, as I said, the, these things have gotten pretty involved. Yeah weren't in, really interested in stuff that was very <laughs> or involved or anything. Yeah. So that might have some role. And the last thing that occurred to me was that with the invention of the printing press, you don't need to be as efficient in describing an idea as you needed to when you had to write everything out by hand. You could basically just keep on, well, not typing and typing and typing, but writing and writing and writing and setting and You could use, you know, a thousand sentences to describe it just as we have uh, here yeah. uh, without having to use this, this, this uh, diagram. So perhaps the need for it uh, fell off. One of the things that Rame suggested, kind of in an in, aside, in was that, because what happened was, I mean, I, this is one of, my, one of my favorite things to talk about with this, is the interactive aspect of the wheel. If you set up these texts, these scriptures, in a kind of, a, in a square form, um, they, what you have is sort of a static thing. You don't know in what direct, let's assume you're reading vertically. You can read vertically, but you really don't know which direction you're going in. And you don't really feel personally involved. Uh, it's kind of more of a, of a scholarly exercise. Uh, when you put in a circular form with God at the middle, oh, and then I forgot to tell you in some ways, the most important thing when I was first given the English translation was that there is actually one more Circle surrounding all those other circles and in it is a legend uh, And the legend says this diagram shows the way home mm. And it's like holy cow, which is like if I, if the other thing was from the Da Vinci Code This was like from Lord of the Rings. Yeah, it was kind of like wow And that was the you know, that was the first sense of you know What you were supposed to do with this if 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 you're trying to find the way home and they've put God in the center Then that really makes you feel oh, I'm supposed to be finding my way to God and then you suddenly these seven spokes really do become seven paths to God and suddenly it's an interactive thing. You're no longer studying, you're participating. And in the, the leastborn wheel, which is the one that we used, you can even see little marks that might have been sort of finger scuff marks as monks sort of, you know, let their fingers do the walking through down the spoke to to God. The interactive aspect is, I think, one of the things that attracted me to it and made me think, yes, we can, we can do something with this. We can. Other people may be interested. It's, it's, it's almost like a board game,
0: you know. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I think that interactive nature of prayer is oftentimes what's missing when we just sort of teach straight prayer. And I, so I, I think that's one of the things about you know, I'm not Catholic, but I understand the Rosary and having something tactile, some some path or some guide that there's still flexibility within, um, but. You know, I, I think providing the the you're you're right. This combination of the visuals and the language uh, and the structure and and it really does kind of like invite you to participate, which which is really something I, I think is, is valuable about it. As you guys started looking at this prayer wheel, you felt like this version in particular might be helpful in today's world. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, we thought that this was a, we we knew it was a tool, uh, and we knew it was a tool for meditation or memorization or prayer or some combination of those three because they, you know, those, those boundaries are a little bit artificial, especially when you talk about the middle ages, Right. but it didn't come with any more instructions than, than the, uh, legend that I just, uh, told you about. So the question was, what good is it? What, you know, what could be done with this because it's one thing to be excited about something, but it's something else to think, well, this might be useful. And my feeling was, well, this is this great, I, for the first, like, for the first six months, I just I just called it the thingy. And I said, <laughs> what can the thingy do, right? Yeah. Uh, and uh, at a certain point, um, I invited um, Patton and Jana in as, as full partners because I'm unable to, you know, read this as a Christian uh, in, a, in any kind of profound sense. Um, but I think it, I, even I may have thought earlier than that that it's like, well, what people need is, is help with prayer. Um, I, you know, I've written not often enough for time that prayer is one of the hardest things that, you know, you can do in a Christian life yeah. and that some people are brought up fairly fluent in it, but then discover when they get older, that their fluency was based on, you know, it being a fairly simple thing and they don't know how to sort of bring it up to speed for their lives as, as they are. And other people are brought up without a whole lot of, of, uh, of personal prayer uh, mostly uh, using liturgical prayer, and don't know what to do when people talk to them about. Well, and now you pray. Yeah. Uh, and and so we looked at this, and it seemed as though prayer was built into this, uh, whether it was defined that way at the time or not. Even if they were using it, if they were using it for meditation, that still involved what we call prayer. And even memorization at that point was a spiritual discipline as well as being a mental discipline. discipline. So we thought if we can show people how this thing could be prayed, uh, it might be, you know, really helpful.
0: Oh, absolutely. And so it, it takes the form of a seven-week cycle, uh, and so you go through the seven spokes, and it really, like like you said earlier, it, it really condenses uh, some of the most uh, important and most really dense parts of of the Bible that we turn to repeatedly for instruction on, on how to find God. And so um, I really do commend this to our, our listeners for either your personal prayer life, or I can even see turning it into a, a seven-week sermon series. Well, that's kind of a long series, but you could certainly work through the spokes of the wheel uh, or use it with prayer groups at your church. It really is a, a powerful tool. And and uh, David, I'm so glad that they flew you out to check out this Indiana Jones Da Vinci Code artifact, and now it's that we have in our hands to use as a practical tool it's really exciting
1: yeah and when, when you say dense i just want to say dense good not dense bad. Right, right i mean the way that the, the way that the the wheel arranges these ideas it gives you space it gives you because you because they're not arranged like next to one another like little dots next to one another they actually each have their own space in the in the graphic of the wheel which allows you to sort of to let them open up and let them interact with one another instead of being hit bam, 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 bam.
0: Well, I would uh, I would uh, feel bad if I missed the opportunity to ask you a bit about the Psalms. Is that something that you've been focusing on in some of your other work? Uh, and obviously our audience of preachers and teachers believe in the spiritual power of prayer and scripture like the Psalms. But as someone who's a cultural observer and a religion writer uh, from a, a secular publication for their readership, what do you see as the role of prayer in the wider world today? And, and why do you think things like the Psalms still resonate today?
1: I think that the prayer is vital um, I think that um, having a way to to approach God and to to um, talk to God and to um, uh, to live out the assumption that God hears prayer uh, and that this is a, a, a you know that, that it's not an existence merely it's I mean, Calvinists pray too, regardless of, right. of, of, of regardless of, of of how great your how big a god you have, or or how lowly you may you may understand yourself to be. That Calvin loved the Psalms, and so it's it seems it seems impossible to me, really, sort of to do without it. Although everybody kind of does it in a different way. The Psalms, when you start talking about the Psalms, on the one hand, it gets. Uh, trickier in modern times because biblical literacy as everybody constantly is saying uh, is decreasing so you had families who used to have a little uh they would have like a uh, like a you know the three by five card recipe box on the table with uh song verses written out in them and then they would you know pick one out every morning yeah. and, and would pray on it that doesn't really exist, or I'm sure it does exist. But I mean, that is far less common than it used to be, and people know them far less well than they used to. But they're still—you you still find them throughout liturgy. You find them uh, in devotionals. You—you uh, you find them whenever. I mean, the, the great thing about the Psalms is they are in the Bible, and yet they are talking to God, right? That mm. um, they are—they're—they're uh, they're notes back to management.
0: <laughs> yeah
1: like, here's the suggestion box. That is such a, a, a vital thing to have that, that you can see the Psalms, and this is one of the things that drew me to the Psalms, moving through history and being embraced by one group of believers after another. And sometimes that even jumps from something like Judaism to Christianity. And even Islam had uh, what might be called the 200-year flirtation with the Psalms, which is why David is one of the, uh, of the major prophets in Islam.
0: Yeah, you you touch on this a bit. Uh, I for in preparation for this interview, I watched a panel discussion that you were part of uh, about the Psalms kicking off an a week's worth of musical and arts performances related to the Psalms. And I'll put that in in our show notes for folks that want to really dig in on this stuff. But you guys had a really uh, interesting section of that discussion about the transition of the Psalms from being solely, you know, Jewish scripture and prayer to being sort of uh assumed into Christianity and transformed some by the Christian religion. Um, obviously, for our our pastors and preachers, I hope that the folks listening to this show are responsible enough to recognize that when they preach on the Psalms, they're preaching on something that is both a Jewish text and a Christian text. Do you have any uh, words of advice or maybe even practical examples of ways to, to recognize uh, and honor the history and context of the Psalms in, in multiple different contexts?
1: Well, I mean— I, one thing that you might think about doing is look for Psalms that are popular in both Christianity and Judaism uh, Psalm 130 out of the out of the depths I call to you uh, that's big in both traditions um, Psalm 145 uh, which is one of the celebratory Psalms towards the end of the Psalter is uh, known in both traditions uh, and in Judaism it's it's actually one of the one of the major prayers uh in the liturgy except for that they add a couple of lines or we add i should say we add a couple of lines at the beginning which give it give it its name which means uh ashram means you know blessed blessed is which is not really quite the 145th psalm anyway <laughs> but, but despite that I, so you might look into that you might look into the way that they are used in judaism so that you can um so that you can then talk about you know the the commonalities and the differences. Something else that you might do is to pick up uh, a translation of the Psalms by a guy named Robert Alter, who was one of the panelists with me uh, that day. Uh, Alter did a literary translation of the Psalms back in 2009 that was, I think, quite popular. Uh, And one of the things that really made it stand out is that he translated the Psalms as they are written in Hebrew. um, Without the accumulation of uh, Christian... Thought that influenced the way uh, that they, that influenced most of the translations that we're familiar with, you know, from the NRSV to uh, the message to, you know, uh, the King James right. to you name it. They all, there are Christian assumptions about the Psalms that then got written back into the language of the translations. And the it might be very interesting to look at Alter's translation of a Psalm that you like. And then look at the translation that you use, or that you, or that you like, uh, other than altars and see what the differences are. See what the what the word um, salvation uh, means in both places. It's a, sort of for for a Christian, it's a it's a bit of a thought of thought experiment in some ways. You you know, the, you asked me, either just now or in the, when you sent me a couple of questions beforehand. You know how to honor both, and that's. Honor is a really interesting word. Uh, that's what I would wish to happen. And I was thinking about it, how do you honor them both, and I think the best way I can think of is just to know about them both. Mm. Uh, and you'll find yourself honoring them, and and you'll be and if you read them uh, in uh, Alters translation, or if you think about uh, what the point of view might have been of somebody uh, who did not uh, regard Jesus Christ as as the Messiah, uh, then. What you will end up doing probably is finding other Christian concepts, other parts of Christianity that found their way into Christianity, um, you know, directly from Judaism. Uh, and then you can add the price the piece.
0: Yeah, absolutely. In in that uh, panel, we'll just tease it again, uh, that, that YouTube video, I'll link to it in the show notes. He shared a couple examples from the 23rd Psalm, which I thought I knew pretty well. Uh, but when he shared some of the translation choices that, that Christian translators have, have made versus how a Jewish person might translate it, I, I found that really interesting. And so we'll, we'll uh, hopefully tease it enough that folks will go check it out. Uh, but we have a set of questions we like to ask all of our guests. And the first one is, what is one of your favorite and or most challenging projects that you've worked on?
1: Uh, well, I'm working on the Psalms in the Middle Ages right now. Uh, the chapter uh, of my book, this in the Middle Ages, and what happened in the Middle Ages was the Psalms exploded. Uh, that um, essentially uh, that uh, monks were kind of like the coolest guys around, and <laughs> it was kind of like Silicon Valley. And except for instead of code, they were using the the Psalms, because the Psalms are so central to to monastic life and and, and liturgy. Uh, And over the course of the Middle Ages, uh, they spread out from the monastery to the laity, and they did it in about 500 different ways. So challenging is the word, because it's kind of like, how how can I organize these things? And meanwhile, it's a thousand years of history. How can I organize these things in a way that makes sense uh, to people, um, but also kind of gets to the tremendous profusion of psalms uh, at that time.
0: Well, who have been some of the most impactful communicators in your life and why?
1: (laughs) You know, a bunch of old guys who were singing in the 60s, or or, who have since passed. I mean, Pete Seeger, I might say. I don't know why I think about—I mean, you know, it's it's very embarrassing to admit that you're a boomer, Uh, (laughs) but— um, I was not raised in a, in a religious household, so I was um, left to my own devices to find the people who influenced sure. me. Uh, and to bring us up slightly more, you know, barely more modern than that, I would say that, that Leonard Cohen uh, is important to me. And what makes him interesting from the point of view of what we were just talking about is that his language is sometimes very like the Psalms, the kind of very, very intimate. I mean, what makes the Psalms wonderful is that they're such intimate addresses to God, that God is seen as great, he's seen as worthy of awe and and fear, but at the same time, he's treated the same way. He's he's addressed in the way that you might address a friend or even a lover, and with the sort of uh, uh, second-person address and an interest in things of faith, you know, Cohen comes very, very close to, to writing modern psalms, and he was very aware of that, and, and, and in his poems, he wrote things that he called psalms, so mm-hmm. he, he has, I would have to say that he's influenced me more recently than, than, than early on, I didn't know that much about him, but I, I came to, I came to like him a great deal, I mean, everybody, I mean, everybody has been hallelujahed, you know, half to death at this point, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I, I might add that Hallelujah is a Psalm word; it did not exist outside of the Psalms. But it, it's a, not a bad sample of what Cohen was able to do.
0: Well, what books, podcasts, or other resources might you recommend our audience check out?
1: During the course of trying to research the history of uh, the wheel, which I hope by now it's pretty clear that they're really that the that we kind of reverse engineered the history of the wheel. That is, we looked at the wheel and tried to figure out where the various elements of it probably got added on or originated. Uh, and uh, one of the people who was most helpful, aside from Ulrich Rain, uh was a gentleman named Roy Hammerling, uh, who is a professor at Concordia. Uh, and he wrote a book called The Lord's Prayer in the Early Church, The Pearl at Great Price. And it was from Roy that, that, that we got the message about Augustine. Uh, and that is a really fascinating book. It's a very, very interesting book about the early history of the Lord's Prayer. And from a psalm point of view, um, there is a guy who did sort of what I'm trying to do before a slightly uh, more sophisticated, a slightly <laughs> more, more Christian audience uh, than I'm going to be trying to reach. His name is William Holiday, and his book is called The Psalms Through 3,000 Years, Prayer Book of a Cloud of Witnesses. Uh, which is really a, it, it's, it's a fabulous, it's a fabulous book. It's not heavy going if you kind of know what you're talking about. And I assume that, you're, that, that your audience here has kind of a head start.
0: And then, and then lastly, if folks want to follow your work or even reach out and say hi, what's the best way for them to do that?
1: Well, I would invite them to friend me on Facebook if they do that kind of thing. Um, you know, I go by my name, David Van and i will and i i i guess that the way to do that might be to send me an, i guess you can send somebody a message you know while you're trying to friend them and just say you know interested in interested in the wheel or interested in the psalms uh and i will of course friend you immediately uh and talk your ear off uh <laughs> and there's also a uh there's a facebook page for the prayer wheel which i think goes by the prayer wheel and it's an open facebook page so if you want to see some people kind of working through it or at least be part of a community that's interested in it, you can do that too.
0: That's awesome. Well, David, thank you so much for your time and and all this wisdom and all this information today. We really appreciate it.
1: It was great. Thank you, Dan. Thanks for letting me talk on.
0: Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of Art of the Sermon. You can find show notes, including links to some of the things that we talked about at artofthesermon.com. As always, I would love to hear what you think about the show, and I want your input to be a part of the conversation. So you can connect with me through Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, all at username Art of the Sermon. If you'd like to support the show, I would encourage you to subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play Music, or your favorite podcast app so that new episodes are downloaded as soon as they're live. And of course, in addition to sharing the show with your friends, the best way to help us out is to leave a review in the iTunes store. This lets iTunes know that you care about the show and want other people to find it. Thank you again so much for joining me, and I'll catch you next time on Art of the Sermon.